Welcome to Hillside Community Church's weekly podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to listen to this week's message and hope that it ministers to you today. Hillside's located in Keller, Texas, and if you would like to know more about us or to listen to previous recordings, please visit us at yourhillside.com. And now, this week's message. Well, good morning. Are you ready? Ah, Romans 8 is, it just gets better and better at Hillside. And next week, uh, I told our, the con- I'll tell you later. I won't tell you now. I won't tell you now. All right, let me, uh, though, do this for you. Jump back forward a little bit. Uh, is that a, Dana, good? All right, um, if we are in Romans 8, I want to just, in case you're, maybe you're a guest today, or you haven't been a part of this series, we've been in Romans for a while now, but we've been Romans 8 for a while as well. And, and listen to what really, let me see if I can sum it up real quickly. All right, so listen. So here's what it says. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is the best way to sum up Romans 8. And basically what it's saying is what, does the, what is the spirit producing? It's producing life. All right, it is producing life. That's the law of the Spirit is how the Spirit works. And what it does is it produces life. And listen, we've been talking about Romans. We've been talking about salvation. We've been talking about all that God does. And here's what the Spirit does now. The Spirit comes and makes God's life open and available to us. That's what it does. It opens God's life to us. That's what his job is. And listen, this is really important as you go into Romans 8 to remember. Salvation is a life. It's not just something that happened to you in the past and you never know really what's going to happen after that. No, 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 no. It's a life imparted to you by the Spirit. And Romans 8 describes how the Spirit makes God's life open, available, and possible for you. All right? No one comes to Christ without that being a part of it. And so what I, I guess I really want to emphasize to you over and over in this text is not only are you secure, the Spirit secures you, it's all of what Romans 8 is about, but it also sanctifies you, it changes you. Because what we said earlier, Romans chapter 3, is, I mean Romans uh, verse 3, it says, the law can't change you. It can't look for the law could not do. What couldn't it do? Well, it couldn't save you because you couldn't keep the whole thing because you're made of flesh. You're weak. So the, the law couldn't do anything about that flesh. And so God had to do it. And God did it by sending his son. He saved you. But he didn't just save you. What the whole point of Romans 8 is to tell you that the Spirit is opening up God's life to you. That's what salvation is. All right, it's far more than just a ticket. It's always been God's intention. I don't think, by the way, uh, let's see if, um, uh, we'll get to it in just a minute. I don't think, uh, I think it's really important that you understand Christian, Christianity is a life, okay? It's not just some, just some event that happened, some religious event that predicts perhaps your future, or the geography of where you land at the end of time. It's God's life inside of you now. So, his job is to sanctify you. Don't get 
put off by that word. It just means to make you holy. His job is to make you holy. I mean, he's called the what kind of spirit? The Holy Spirit. And, oh, clue, clue phone is for you. <laughs> right, that just means he's trying to make you holy. That's what his job is. And anyone who knows Christ has the spirit inside of him trying and, and moving to make him holy. So you're not just being saved, you're being sanctified by the spirit. All right, this is... This is really incredible. In fact, this is what the whole goal was. The goal was always to make you holy. It wasn't just to give you a destination. It was to make you holy. God saved you to make you holy. And that's his role in the purpose. of It's not a subcategory. Making you holy isn't a subcategory to salvation. It's part and parcel. Ephesians 1.4 says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy holy and blameless. It was always to make you holy. It was never just to save you and then leave you there. You have the spirit of life imparted to you. Notice what he says, and when it is all said and done, so when it's all said and done, what will you look like? When it's all said and done, what will you look like? You will look just like Jesus Christ. Romans 8 tells us that, that you be conformed to the image of his son. We're going to get there. We're not even there yet. But before you even get there, listen to uh, 1 John. Let's see where I have that at. Do I have it somewhere? I know I do somewhere. Might be up here, 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 here. There it is. Look at this. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. This is just Romans 8 all over. We'll see that. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Watch this. Uh, where is it? There it is. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. Even though we're going to look like Jesus ultimately, we're not fully there yet. And the wonder and glory that will appear, Colossians 3 tells us, right? That when he appears, we shall also appear as glorified. All right? Fully. And what he says, we know that when he appears, we will be, here it is, like him. That was the goal. That's always been the goal. No one, hey, no one comes to Christ but that that isn't the goal for him. To be like his son, not just some ticket to heaven. It was always the goal that you be like his son. It's really important. It's utterly and thoroughly like him. Now watch this. Because now as we get into Romans 8, I'm kind of uh, summarizing here. I want to get to, uh, look at, I want to take you back to verse 10, and I just kind of want to, this is kind of the ramp onto the highway. So we're not hit the highway yet. You're just picking up speed now, all right? Here we go. This is our little ramp to the highway. Verse 10, remember? Mark, listen, by the way, verses 10 to 17, circle all the ifs in 10 to 17 in your Bible. Okay, they're important, and I'll explain why in a minute. If Christ is in you, we just said, what's the Spirit doing? He's inside of you. What Spirit? Though the body is dead because of sin. All right, watch this. Though the body is dead because of sin, Christ is in you, the Spirit's in you. you Romans 8 speaks of both of them the same. 
Though the body is dead because of sin. In other words, what he's saying is, I know that even though the goal is to make you look like Christ, I know you still have a body that's going to die. You still have a body made of the stuff of this world. And listen, sin and death go together. If it's sin, it's going to die. And that's the body you and I carry. But yet, look at what he says. The spirit is alive because of righteousness. Now, let me just say, I don't think there's a better way to describe what a Christian is. Even though he's dead in a, in a body that's going to die physically because of sin, because of the effects of sin, he is alive because of righteousness. He is alive because of the righteousness that Christ... This is really important. He is alive because of the righteousness of Christ that God applied to my life. I didn't, I didn't have any righteousness in me. God applied Christ's righteousness to my account. That's why I look so good to God, because he sees Jesus' righteousness, not mine. I didn't have any. So because of righteousness, look, I'm alive. I can relate now to God. And it's not only because of righteousness. He produces righteousness in me. In other words, the inside of me is not like the outside of me. The inside of me, here's the best way to describe a Christian, alive because of righteousness. He is alive to righteousness. He can be righteous. He is alive to it. God's life, remember the Spirit, is producing the life of God inside of me. I am alive because of the Spirit to righteousness. I can live for God even though I'm in a body that's made of sin. The inside of me is alive to righteousness. So this is that life that we're talking about. This is why you can't imagine a life that's not living righteously. You don't come to Christ and not live righteously because you're alive to righteousness now. It's open to you. It's available to you. You're suited for it. You can breathe that environment. You can breathe in the environment of righteousness because of what the Spirit of God has done inside of you. Watch this. But if the, here it is again, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, remember we talked about the Spirit dwells in you, if you're a Christian, the Spirit dwells inside of you. He who raised Jesus from the dead, Christ Jesus from the dead, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit, who again, he repeats it. So here's twice. Look, this, this thing is encompassed in this whole idea right here of the body that dwells in you and dwells in you. Two times. He's emphasizing the point. Guess where the Spirit is? In you. Now, here's what this is saying. It's awesome. He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal body. So even though your mortal body now is, is going to die because of sin, and internally you're alive to righteousness, one of these days, even your body, watch this, even your body will no longer be subject to sin in the future. So committed to God, that you ultimately be righteous is he intends to raise you from the dead just like his son was raised from the dead and make you completely righteous in every respect. This is just the Spirit saying, hey, guess what? Guess what your eternal destiny is? Righteousness. You will be what I'm asking you to be now, you will be. So because, because that's where you're headed, and because you're destined for that, and because that's the trajectory you're on, then you ought to make decisions and live life as if it's already real and true about you now. 
because that's your destiny. So committed to God. And how committed is, hey, how committed is he? We have been studying Romans basically 1 through 8. Can you see in Romans 1 to 8 the commitment of God to make you holy? He's invested everything in the plan to make you holy. And ultimately you will be holy in every respect to where there will not be one trace, not one trace of sin or its effects in you or on you or near you or around you, anywhere. That's what this is saying. The ultimate goal is to make you just like his son. God is committed to that. No one could imagine coming to his son and expect as if the idea that somehow we get to heaven, this is all over. You give your life to Christ and then, you know, you live the best you can, then you get to heaven and it's all over. That is nowhere close to what Paul is going to teach us. The idea of what heaven is and it's the whole idea of what we're going to be doing in the presence of God forever, which was what God has always been doing in history, is to get us all together without sin again. There's no way to imagine that in between sin is okay. It's not okay. That's the reason. So, it's all going to be changed is a marvelous, marvelous thought. So God, eventually, one of these days, God's full and complete life will be utterly open to us and we'll be living in an environment we were always intended for. The final stage of it for the believer is where his body is ultimately transformed the same way the inside of him is. That's what you're destined for. The implications of that are phenomenal, Hillside. That means there's nothing in this reality that matters anyway. In fact, look what he says in these verses. I'm going to have to hurry a little bit. Look, I'm going to give you three verses for uh, three verbs in verses 12, 13, and 14 that explain the implications of the fact that you're going to be there one day. And the reason you're going to be there, it's not just to, just to say you made it and somehow you hide out in heaven and nobody ever knows who you are. Where's Peter? I don't know. He's like a recluse. He never shows up to any of the things Jesus is doing. Didn't come to the dinner last night. No, that's not it at all. That's not what heaven's going to be like. Some of you are living that way now. You don't do anything with him. You don't do anything for him. And you expect that in heaven you're going to want to all of a sudden do it. If you don't want to do it now, folks, that says something. It says something. All right? So then... What's the so then there for? That so then is there to say, what's the big deal that we're going to be in heaven with God someday and we'll be just like him in every way, from head to toe, every molecule, every part of who we are transformed spiritually. So then, brother, guess what? Here's three things. One, you are not under obligation to the flesh. We've already rehearsed it. I'm just rehearsing. We're not under ob- You have no obligation to live for this life instead of the next one. You are under obligation to live for the next one. Does that make sense? You are not, hey, listen, let me tell you how freeing it is to say to yourself, you know what? Because I think most of us actually live with a different mentality. We live with a mentality that goes like this. Well, that's who I am, and I guess that's part of what I got to deal with, I guess. guess. That's just who I am, and I'm never really going to change fully, and that's our mentality. As if we're obligated to be jerks, or if we're obligated to be unloving. We're obligated. This is just how it is here. No, here's what Paul is saying. You're not under obligation. 
You do not have to live that way. That way has ruined you. That way will kill you. That is not the life God intended for you. You are not under obligation. And how freeing is it? Just say to yourself, I really don't have to be a jerk to my husband or my wife. Say it. You don't have to be. You're not obligated to be a jerk anymore. I'm, I'm unobligating you to that. You're not obligated to the flesh. So free. Why? Because you're on a trajectory to somewhere else. It's not your ultimate destiny. You're alive. You're not dead. <laughs> Just awesome. So you're not obligated. Here's the second one. Watch this. Not obligated to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if, here we go, just circle them as we go, you are living according to the flesh, you must die because death and the flesh are associated. Flesh is essentially living sinfully. So sin and death are always associated. That's the reason I don't like that life. What sin in your life has ever produced anything that you value today? To the degree that you would say, oh, yeah, sin has been the best thing, the best thing about my life, sin. Oh, yeah. When I was a jerk back then, <laughs> greatest thing I ever did. When I was selfish and greedy back then, <laughs> oh, I loved myself then. Who's ever? Who's ever gotten away with it? No one sins and lives, not ultimately or now, temporally. It's always death-like existence. But if by the Spirit... You are, here it is, putting to death the deeds of the body. You will, oh, look at this, you will live. Now, what does he mean, you will live? Okay, well, what he means is you will live ultimately in heaven. Just what he just said earlier. You're going to be raised and you're going to live in the kingdom. Well, how do you know you're on your way to that kingdom and you're on your way to being like Jesus Christ? Because you're, here's why. How do you know you will live? Because you're putting now, you are putting to death the deeds of the body. You're already doing it now because the ultimate goal is for you to get a new body and not let that body dominate your life in sin. You're already killing that thing. Isn't that great? You're already killing it. You're not waiting for God to kill it. You're not living any way you want, waiting for heaven. You are already killing this body because you know you're going to get a new one anyway. Isn't that amazing? That's the implications of the Spirit being in your life and opening God's life to you. First thing, you're not obligated to the flesh. You don't have to do what it tells you to do. And the second thing is, if you really want to live, since that's where you're going anyway, who wants to live in a righteous world in the future but doesn't want one now in their life? I've been with my aunt all week. She's Italian. I... Who? Who wants to live in utter pure righteousness forever from head to toe in every possible respect but doesn't want it now? That's not a good sign. Hey, keep in mind the if. Just saying. If you're headed for that life, you're already putting to death the deeds of the body. I want to talk to you just for a second about putting to death the deeds of the body. Because there's some, I know, even when I read that, I think to myself, what in the world does it mean? It's a really important, by the way, a very important New Testament concept right here is killing the body. Read Galatians and read Col Colossians 3 and Galatians 5. 
And you will see the whole idea of putting to death the deeds of the body. It's the whole idea of you've been crucified with Christ. Okay? Paul says in Galatians 2.20. Listen, you put to death the deeds of the body. That means you kill sin in your life. It really means to kill. Put to death is a nice way to say what the text is really saying. Slaughter, kill, destroy sin in your life. Murder it is the idea. Uh, and, you know, when you hear that, you, just, you still kind of want to know what do you mean by that. And here's what it's saying. You're to treat sin with disdain. It's not a companion. It's something you'd kill. It's not something you want anywhere near your life. It's not mercy at all. You know, you can be merciful to yourself about your sin sometimes. You let yourself off the hook, and you, and you just overlook it, and you just kind of move on, and it's no big deal. No, God doesn't want sin to be your companion. He wants you to kill it. No mercy. In other words, it's not a living option for you. He's already said you're not under obligation to do it. Now he's saying sin, more specifically, is, is not a living option for you as a believer. It's not a living option for you. Do you remember? I, about every year, I watch The Godfather. I'm obligated. And remember the scene when Michael Corleone says to Fredo, his brother, what does he say? You're dead to me. You're dead to me. That's what he's saying. Sin is dead to you. It's not a living option. We are not on the same page so much that you are dead to me. So what does it mean to kill sin? Well, watch this. All of those two things, not under obligation, uh, and killing the deeds of the body, this is what people who have the Spirit inside of them do. This is God's life being open to you. And I want to show you what verse 14 says. For, this explains, listen, that little for explains what he just said in 12 and 13. You're not under obligation to the flesh, and you kill the deeds of the body. For, what does that mean? Sum it up for me, Paul. That's what it means to be led by the Spirit. The Spirit leads you away from the flesh and to kill sin. If the Spirit isn't doing that in your life, then you know, watch, you're not a son. So what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? That doesn't mean, Lord, what should I wear today? And it doesn't mean, who should I marry? And it doesn't mean, what college should I go to? That's not the kind of guidance here. The kind of guidance here is he's leading you to kill sin and leading you to life in God. That's what he's talking about here. So if that's not happening to you, what he says, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these, these are the sons of God. These are the ones who are related to God. See? They kill the deeds of the flesh. That's what it means to be led by the Spirit. Now let me see if I can help you understand this. Uh, there's a real, just a real practical principle for you as I look at this because this is what I struggle with the most when I read this text. What does that mean in my life? For most of us, we have some sins that have attached themselves to our life that we're very familiar with. Amen? We know our little angry heart. We know when we can be snooty. We know when we can be greedy. We know when we can be angry, right? We know when we can be selfish. We know all those things. Listen, we're sick 
people. Amen? You, oh, yes. All right. I don't know why I said amen. I think I'm a Baptist or something. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just kidding. There's nothing bad about Baptists. I don't mean that. I'll get an email. I don't want an email. All right? I'm not, you know, I don't hate the other denominations. Nothing like that. Spirit of God is opening up God's life to you. So this is how it would look. So let's say one of those familiar sins of yours is lust. Very common, almost woven into the fabric of the human being. He wants more than his fair share. He can't help it. He wants things that aren't his. And he's happy to turn even a human being into an object that would be used for his own benefit. That's how deep it can go. And we, you know, killing sin in your life doesn't mean, hey, at 11 o'clock, you know, or 1.30 in the morning, when I normally look at porn, I'm going to really try to be strong. And I'm going to fight sin, you know? No. What killing sin means is walking away from it towards something God wants you to be or do. Not just sitting around standing here like God puts you in a ring and fights sin all day. Like driving in a car, you know? Because some of you, some of us, and we're our worst in a vehicle. It's like we're two different people. Right? You know. Schizophrenic. And you think, oh, well, today I'm going to try not to be mean. You could try not to be mean, or you can commit yourself that day to being nice. You see the difference? The Spirit is leading you how to love and serve people, not use them, not take out stuff on them, not hurt them. The Spirit's leading you away from sin. And when you walk away from sin and you choose Christ in essence, you have killed sin. You've left it behind and you've killed it. You've abandoned it. That's how you kill it. You don't just kill it by standing there at 1.30 in the morning trying to fight it. You do it by how do I love my wife? How can I help? How can the Spirit help me to be more loving toward people? How can I recognize in my heart that I can't turn a woman into that kind of object? When you think that way, the Spirit starts producing what He wants in you, not just keeping sin out of your life. The Spirit's trying to produce God's life in you. You see? And that's just, it's important. You don't just despise porn. You don't just try to stop it. You try to become loving. When you look in the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see Jesus, how he deals with lust. You turn somebody into an object. Well, what what is the ultimate goal you want? What do you want me to do with them, Lord? I want you to love them, serve them. Value them, because I value them. That's why I don't want you lusting after them. Value them is the positive side, and that's what the Spirit leads us to. That's how the Spirit leads us. You choose Him. For if... When He leads you into life, that makes you a son. That's how you become a son. You're his child. That's, that's being in the family. If you're in the family of God, that's what you do. You're not, if you're in his family, you're not under obligation to sin. You kill the deeds of the body and you're being led by the Spirit now. 
because you know that one day you're going to completely discard everything about sin in your entire life eventually anyway, so you're already doing it now because that means that means that the Spirit of God that's ultimately going to transform you into Christ here is already in you now working to do it now. That's why you can't be a Christian and skip the middle part. As if you can skip the middle piece, go from the beginning all the way to the end as if nothing happened. No, no, no. It's a complete process that begins immediately once the Spirit is deposited inside of your life. God's life becomes dominant. You become alive to righteousness. That's how it looks, and that makes you a son. That's what a son is. That means this is your status in your new relationship. And here, you know, it doesn't happen often, but here the text gets a little mushy. The text gets a little mushy here. Because now he's going to change this whole family dynamic thing, right? A very powerful statement he's going to make right here. Look, for you have not received, here's this explanation, all the way back to what does it mean to be a son and be led by him, for, listen, you don't have a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. This is not, you don't do the right thing because of judgment. You're not afraid anymore. You're not a slave to sin anymore. Slaves are afraid. They fear everything. When you're a slave to sin, you fear judgment. Oh, Lord, I better, I better, I better, I better. That's not the spirit God wants you to operate with. A lot of us do. You have received a spirit of adoption. Now, when you're a slave, or watch this, when you're a slave, if I free you, you become, at least biblical language, a freeman, a free man. Okay? Well, here's what. He skips this and goes all the way to son, as if to say, no, 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 you're not just free. Watch this. I didn't just get saved and then God let me loose. Hey, you're free to go. Who knows where you're going to go, where you're going to end up, or what you're going to do, and it doesn't matter how you do it. No, 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 no. Guess what he did? He made you from here all the way to here. So he didn't just free you. He made you part of the family. And that has radical implications. This is why you're secure. You can't be any more secure than what this text is telling you right here. You are not just a name in the book of life. Oh, let me just check to see if your name is in the book. I don't know you. Where, where are you from? Oh, Phoenix. Oh, I, we don't have many Phoenix people in here. Uh, there you go. No, no, no. You're not a name in a book. You're part of the family. And that has implications. You've been adopted. Now, adoption has to be understood in a biblical context because adoption for us still, there's a stereotype in which it is somewhat of a second-class thing in the minds of, of many in our culture. Um, you, if you saw Avengers, you, you know the stink over the comment that's, that was made by Thor about his brother Loki, right? They're both brothers. Loki is a killer, just a cold-blooded killer. On the other hand, Thor is this guy who fights for righteousness and justice and wants to protect. And when questioned about how is he related to you, Thor says, oh, no, he's adopted. 
And we laugh, and we laugh because that's kind of the underlying feeling in part of our culture. We can make that joke. Now, we don't necessarily feel that way about specific adopted people, but it's in the culture just generally. That's how it is. But in Roman, Greco-Roman world, that joke would never have been made. It would never have been made. The Jews didn't adopt. But in the Greco-Roman world, which Paul has in mind here, they, they did adopt. And their adoption was far different. I say far different. It is, is much more different than what we deal with in adoption. And I'll try to help you understand a couple of those things. Uh, in, uh, in, our, in the Greco-Roman society, you were a first-class son when you became a son. You received the best from the father. It was just the opposite. You became the better son when you were adopted. You know, when you have a kid, and, we, and for those of us who have kids and we watch them grow, there are times you look at your kids, you know, you might say it to your spouse, you might say it to yourself, oh, I wish you were taller, play a little basketball. But I guess we're not going to be able to do that. Or you might say, oh, I wish you had a better personality. Because you really are a stick in the mud, kid. You really are a stick in the mud. Or you might say, uh, you know, you, might, you can say anything. All right? A uh, little more brain power. Wish you had a little more brain power. Wish you could think a little better than you think. All right? When you, have a, when you have a kid, you get what you get. In the Roman culture, when you adopted, you adopted very rarely was it babies. It was older kids. You looked at somebody and you said, that's the kid that I really wanted right there. <laughs> and then you go adopt him. And you bring him into your family. You go, that's the kid. He has the capabilities that I wish my kid had. You steal him from another father. <laughs> that's what you did. You asked him to come into your family and you adopted him. You didn't adopt him to, to, to protect him. You didn't adopt him because he had nowhere else to go. You didn't adopt him for any other reason than you wanted him to inherit your, your estate. You felt like he could represent your family better. You felt like he could perpetuate your family better. And so you adopted him for that reason, and he became very, very special. He inherits that first place spot, and he gets all the best of the father. They would get the best education. They would get the most affection from the father. It was a very high place. There was no adoption jokes in Rome. In fact, four things happened when you were adopted. First, you lost all rights to your former family. You have no rights to your former family. So you couldn't go back and claim anything. Okay, and they could adopt you at any age. They'd adopt you at any age just to bring you into the family to rent. Mostly sons, not very rarely daughters, because it was a son they would pass the estate to. Uh... And that's just how it worked. And so the adopted kid lost all the inheritance of his former family. He was cut off from it completely. All right? The second thing is, is he became the heir of the new father's estate. The heir of the new father's estate. Thirdly, the old life of the adopted kid was completely disseminated. All right? Completely obliterated. It's as if he didn't exist in a former life. He just gone. That means all past connections, all records were obliterated. There was no record of your birth anywhere else. Okay? It was literally as if you were born again. If you had a debt, all debts in that moment, in an instant, on the spot, were obliterated. Okay? In the eyes of the law, fourthly, you were the permanent, absolute son of a new father. And that means even if the father died, the sons, any of the children who might get felt a little left out because they had a, couldn't come and do anything to uh, claim rights above you. 
They couldn't do anything. You, it was permanent. And that's what he's saying here about our adoption in Christ. You can see it's a picture of salvation. All the former life, family, adherence to our father, former father, are canceled. We have all new rights and privileges in Christ. The old life is passed away. All debts are canceled by the cross. The only difference the spiritual adoption gives us is you not only give a name and a title and rights, but you are transformed and regenerated by the Holy Spirit. This is what's really important and why he brings it up in the context of being led by the Spirit away from sin and to the life of God. Because when you become part of the family, you don't just get legal rights. Hey, you don't get a new last name and a new title and this is going to be yours when I die. That's not all it's going to be. You actually get his DNA. Because the Spirit comes to live inside of you, see? It's the Spirit of adoption. He comes to live inside of you. And because he lives inside of you, you now have the genetic code of the master. You have the genetic code of your father. That means you live righteous because he does. It, you, you take on the family resemblance. You have his DNA in you. You ever have your kids and you, say, you ever look around at your kids or somebody ever come up to you and say to your kid, boy, you couldn't deny that kid. You couldn't deny that kid. You not only look like him, you act like him. You not only look like him, you act like him. That's what this is saying. You not have all the legal rights to heirship, but you also have the Holy Spirit inside of you making you live just like him. So you take on his nature too. That's what the spirit of adoption is. It's just a beautiful, beautiful picture. And it's not just legal, because it's a very formal legal process in Rome. They had seven witnesses, Okay? Seven witnesses to the adoption process, to the, trans, to the transaction. All right? So it's very formal. But watch this. It's not just formal legal. You've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which you cry. That means you give voice to it. Something inside of you declares, I know, I, am, I know he is my father. I know he is my father. And he says, you cry out, Abba. It was just an Aramaic word for, for pop. It's not something a little kid would say to his dad. It's very emotional, very tender, very dependent kind of statement. Okay, and it's just repeated here just for emphasis. Father. And really, the whole idea there is to say that it's not just a rational thing. It's not just rational, but it's emotional too. And you should sense the spirit inside of you, creating this dynamic that you feel a part of the family. This is very mystical. It's very experiential. But the spirit is not letting us off the hook related to that. It's not saying it's just rational. You ought to sense the spirit inside of you saying that. Um, in other words, it's more than just saying birth certificate or let me look in the, let me look in the book to see if your name's in here. I don't want God to do that when I get to heaven. I want to feel like he loved me and knew me. And I, I got to be a son all week because I spent the week with my dad. And the hillside, he's one of my favorite people to be with. We have the best time. So many levels. And being with him all week was awesome. There's so many ways I'm like him. There's so many ways that we relate and know each other and understand each other. And, and it's not because 
he has a birth certificate on file. You know, it's more like he wore my jersey in high school when I played games. And he didn't sit in the stands. My dad always stood in the end zone. He always stood in the end zone in the way I was facing, whether I was on offense or defense. He always stood in the end zone to wear it. So he went from end zone to end zone wearing my jersey so that the entire game I could look down the field and see my dad standing in the end zone. He is my dad, not on legal levels. In fact, I have a picture that I keep in my office. See if you can get a little bit what I'm feeling. This was taken when I was in high school. And uh, this is in the couple of years when my dad and I were renewing a relationship because he wasn't in my life early. And this picture sits in my office in a special place because it, it has, I don't know how to put words to what you see there. Can you see it? The way I know he feels toward me, can you feel that? It's the best feeling in the world. It kind of looks like Joe Namath in there, kind of looking at it. And so when he played for the Jets, we were so close. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know how to put into words what's there, but I feel that, and that's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit is trying to create this dynamic in you. You know, what kind of son wouldn't love a father like that? Just by, by looking at the picture, what kind of son would want to hurt his dad? It's just impossible. The Holy Spirit is trying to produce that dynamic. The Holy Spirit testifies. In fact, look. Look what it says. The Spirit himself, verse 16, testifies with our spirit that we are, look, not sons anymore. Now it's broad to children. We're his children. That's what it says. The Spirit testifies. How does the Spirit do that? Because you've you got to ask that hard question. There's a lot of hard questions to ask in the text. But this is one of them. How does it do that? This is how it does it. It stands over here because, remember, you needed seven witnesses to transact an adoption process in Rome. But here, you only need one. It's the Holy Spirit. He stands on the side trying to tell you, yeah, you're his son. Yeah, he loves you. Like that. That's why you don't want Yes, you are his son. You can do Hey, can I? Can you? I, I'm thinking about my spiritual life, and I'm trying to become what God wants me to become. And I'm not sure I can, I'm not sure I can sacrifice that, or I'm not sure that I'm really hopeful enough of that. I'm not sure I trust enough. And the Spirit's over there going, yeah, you can. You can because you're his son. You're not a slave. You're not just anybody, Pete. God feels towards you just like your dad does, more so. And so you are free to be what he wants you to be. It's okay to love even though it hurts you. It's okay to serve even though it hurts you. The Holy Spirit's constantly going, yeah, do it. Do it because you're his son. He loves you. That's how it testifies. And you feel it inside of you. If that never, if you never feel that, then the spiritual life is going to become something very, listen, very impersonal and crusty if you wake up every day going, I'm supposed to live right, and if I don't, I'm in trouble. That's how many of us wake up every day. And we're a little mad at God that his expectations are so high. Don't you ever feel that way about God? Which one of us doesn't feel that way? It's like, Dad, gone. Can you leave me alone for five minutes? Anybody ever said that? The pastor has said that before to God. <laughs> Get off my back. And the Spirit said, he's not on your back. He loves you. He's not on your back. He loves you. That's why you do those things. 
And the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are his children. And watch. Here comes our last set of ifs. If children, then heirs also. Uh, I got to finish here in just a second. I know where I'm supposed to end. I got to get to that spot. Let me just see if I can get you ready for next week here. Okay, the if, I'm just going to sum up this little if statement here real fast that we've said all the way through here. A lot of times you will hear pastors say that the if, because it's, it's what, and, and I really like grammar. I'm just like a grammar guy. And, um, and I'm, I'm not brilliant at it, but I, I, learn, I try to learn something grammatically in the, in the Greek language all the time, constantly. And let me just tell you something about this first class condition. It's a first class condition in Greek. This has a potasis and an, an, a, a protasis. All right, now listen. That means an if statement, then statement. That's all it means. So if... Uh, is sometimes said by pastors to be translated as since. Okay? But there's a, there's, there's a little bit of a problem with that. I mean, the reason is because the first class condition assumes reality. So this is what it means by assumes reality. You would translate it this way. Since you are children, you are heirs. Could you say that? You could. Because the first class condition assumes reality. Here's the problem. It assumes reality. It's not absolutely certain of the reality. That's why you say if instead of since. If you, stay, if you say since, you don't open up the idea that maybe this isn't true about you. That's why you say if. If Greek wanted to say since, there's a Greek word for the word since. So the ifs all the way through here, while they assume reality, in other words, Paul's assuming that the congregation is the children of God. He assumes it, but he's not absolutely certain everyone in the room is. So he uses if to force you to do what? Ask yourself the question. If you translate it since, you lose the punch. You lose the whole point of the, am I one of his children? So if you're backing up, you're going to say, I don't know if I'm an heir. Am I one of his children? I'm one of his children. I'd be one of his sons. If I'm one of his sons, I'm being led by the Spirit. If I'm being led by the Spirit, I'm killing the deeds of the body. If I'm killing the deeds of the body, that means the Spirit of God dwells in me and I have no obligation to the flesh. You see? See what he's forcing you to do? He's forcing you to go, is that me? 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 And that's the question. Is it you? That's got to hang. And if you're a child, guess what? Your future is set. Because you're an heir. You're an heir of God. That's the first thing. That means the whole... Listen, I told the first service from a study of just this section, which I don't have time to go into deeply now, has been one of the most rewarding, heartfelt... The vast majority of the time that I was thinking about this, writing about it, I was, emo- I was, I was emotional. And I was on a plane for some of it because it's so overwhelming. And Romans 8 is going to open up to this. But I'm, going to, I'm here to tell you, I could never preach what this really means for you in the right way. It's, it's just that powerful. And I'm telling you, unless the Spirit really gets in your heart and helps you see it, but if you do, it'll change your life what it means to be an heir of God.
because that means everything. I was with my dad, and my dad's a collector. And since the 80s, he's been collecting. Coins, jewelry, watches. He's just a collector of those, buys and sells. And he was showing me stuff, some of the stuff he's collected over time. And one of the things that he would show me would be a coin. It would be like something he bought for this amount in the 80s and what it's worth now. I go, wow. And, and at least five or six times, you know what he said to me during that time? It's, gonna, it's yours. It's going to be yours. It's going to be yours. Everything he showed me. I go, what's that? It's going to be yours. I want it now. I want an Oompa Loompa now, Daddy. <laughs> no. When I croak, you get it. Until I'm dead, it's mine. That's my father's opinion. But I'm an heir, and fathers love it. Fathers love that they're leaving their stuff to their kid. And that's what he's saying. And I'm an heir of God. Can you imagine? I'm an heir of God. That means everything God has. God has more than a little coin collection and a couple of watches. In fact, it doesn't even amount to the hill of beans of those things. He's got a universe, a new heaven and a new earth. That's mine because it's his. If it's his, it's mine. All the rights and privileges that come with knowing him. And it's one step further, and i got to close with this, and then we're going to next week pick up on this. Listen, and not only am I an heir, here's what makes it stronger and more secure. I'm a fellow heir with Christ. Now, you, you got to step back. You say, what does that mean? Well, here's what it means. It means I'm on par with Christ to God. Remember what spirit of adoption is? I'm not less than. I'm right on par with him, and I'm linked to him. I'm as secure as Christ is as God's son. As secure as Christ is to God, guess what? I am too. I am a fellow heir. That means all that Christ has in God, I have too. This is God saying, you're, as, you're equal with me to my son. What well, doesn't get any more secure than that. I'm not a second-class citizen. What does it say Christologically? What does it say about Christ? You think about this. How many of you would be willing to share all that you have with the Father with the likes of you and me? You just meditate on that. What kind of person Jesus is to be willing to let you be on par with him when it comes to the inheritance that we receive at the end? Because it's not just us that are heirs. Here this says, Christ is an heir too. And he's willing to share it. We are fellow heirs. Just phenomenal. I have... Okay. This is your assignment. Here's your last if. I'm an heir of Christ and all that is his is mine. If, here's the last if. I'm an heir if indeed I what? There is a part of me that absolutely despises this verse. And if you're honest, you're like, man, it was so good up to now. It's like watching a really good movie and it ends bad. He doesn't get the girl. I hate those kind of movies. 
Then you're like, oh, no, suffering. Oh, I was a son. I was having fun. You had a great picture of your dad. He looks like Joe Namath. And now you got me suffering. Let me just tell you, this right here is so hard to grasp what it means. But from here to verse 30, from here to verse 30, I, I will tell you this, Hillside, I can't think in my wildest imagination anything we need to hear more than what verses 17 to 30 say. And we get to look at them over the next couple weeks. And I'm so excited. If I'm you, even if I haven't even seen my Bible in five years, I would pick it up and read this section because it's that phenomenal. Critical to how you think and live right now, what this means right here. Okay. That's all I can say right now. I'm a little behind, and I'm sorry for that. Uh, next week is baptism. I hope you won't miss that. So many people have been transformed, and I, I hope you'll be here for that. But I do have one thing to tell you. Family business, all right? We're done with that. I hope that just settles on you. I have to share something with you. If you're a guest, you're going to feel, you're going to say to yourself, TMI, that's TMI for me. If you're a, uh, but if you're a family member, you need to hear this. Um, every year, because of the way our loan with the bank is for this building is set up, we have to renew it every year. So it's not like a traditional loan. It's on a three- or five-year amortization or anything like that. It's, uh, it's set, and every year we have to renegotiate it. That's why every year we do a campaign in November, because January is when we renegotiate that loan. And we have two loans both with the same bank. One is the majority of it, 99.9%. One is like 6.8 million. And then the small one is a small one, which is about 170K. And we pay both of them. They're separate for God knows all the economic reasons or financial reasons they are, but there's two. And so we know we have to pay that one off, and eventually we're going to, and we do it slowly like we do the others because we're committed to paying down debt. We're just committed to it. Um, but this past January after we had done our campaign. They didn't renew the loan with us in January like they were supposed to. They've waited until now. So it's not until now that they want to renegotiate the loan. And part of the renegotiation is that they want us to pay 100, that 170k, that small one, off before the end of May. So because of that, now listen, I want to say something to you. Um, we have the money. We have the money because obviously we've planned and we plan to give it slowly and we uh, wanted to pay it down anyway. We were just doing it on a little slower pace. But because they want it now, we have the money uh, in our building savings, if you will, to do it, but it will deplete it. It'll take that 170K. And as we go into the summer months without having that little building reserve, which the summer months, historically, they kind of dip for the months, and we got to pay that rent every, every month, paying that off immediately just leaves us without that little savings and reserve. And I don't know about you, but it just, it just scares me as the church to go through those months without it. It scares our board as well. That's why they asked me to share it with you. And so uh, what I'm asking is just for help in any possible way. It's not, a, it's not a panic moment, but I'd rather go to the summer months with some of that reserve. So any, anything above what we normally give could go toward that. So anything you give to... Your normal giving, you know, we give the general fund around here, we give to the building fund. That's stuff we already do. This has to be separate because we can't pull from those pots to this because we still owe all the things that are on this side 
over here. So any special gift you could give this month will go directly to principal. We're, we're happy to pay the 170 dollars We're trying to get out of this thing anyway. But it just leaves us a little bit short for the summer on the building side. Not operational, just building side. So anything you could give toward it, over and above what you already do. Don't stop doing anything you already do. And I want to say this to you, Hillside. You are phenomenally generous. So this is... I mean, we couldn't do anything we do without... I'm telling you, the giving around here has been amazing. Nobody's hurting. But with this here, I'd rather have that reserve. So anything you give allows us to make, go toward that principle and keeps our reserve. But it has to be over and above. So if you can't do that, that's fine. For those of you who can, I'm just inviting you to be a part of it. I shoulder... Sometimes I take on in myself the weight of this crap and it destroy, it is overwhelming, and the board hates it when I do that, because the board, and I hate for them to shoulder it, you know. But this is just family. If you can help, be, it'd just be awesome, all right? So anything you give. So just put in the memo. You can go online and go to building and just do special gift. Just put in the memo, special gift. It'll all go directly to principal to pay that thing right there off. So we're going to do it for the month of June. So you have the month of June to help us just make a little reserve for the summer and pay that principal off. That's totally what it will do. All right? I really appreciate you being willing to hear that. You know, it's, it's, uh, I, I just want you to know how much I appreciate what you already do. Okay? Um, so, I, I love you and I appreciate that. And I appreciate you being able to hear that. In any way you can help. I mean, if there's some of you got 50000 in your pocket right now, right where you sit right now, in cash, go ahead and use it for God. That's what I'm saying. All right? So if you can help with that, it would be much appreciated. All right? Father, thank you for our time. I love you with all my heart, Lord. I thank you for who we are in Christ because of what you've done for us. And I just pray that this week we would sense your spirit showing us our relationship with you in a way that motivates us to live the life that you have designed and prepared and determined for us to live. And we look forward to next week. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Hillside. Have a great week.